check this here. It is the 25th of August, which means, what, four months until Christmas. Somebody posted, a friend of mine posted on uh, social media uh, the other day. It's like uh, 10 weeks or something, 13 weeks, 20 weeks. I, I, how many weekends is it until Christmas? Uh, I know it seems very early to be uh, thinking about this, to be talking about this, but uh, I guarantee you, <laughs> you look at your calendar, probably half those weekends uh, are planned with something. <laughs> and I'm wondering, when am I going to get my shopping done? Good morning, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, last month's rescue of thousands of dogs from a Virginia research breeding facility made big headlines. We'll speak with one of the individuals who spearheaded the investigation into the inhumane practices at Invigo. Also this morning, the Flag City Morning Rotary is seeking grant applications from nonprofits in Hancock County. We'll get details. In our community and business spotlight this morning, how much do you know about addiction, overdose, and its true impact on our community? Hancock Public Health is hosting an awareness event this week where you can learn the facts. And in honor of National Aviation Week, we salute military pilots and support staff and highlight career opportunities in this field within the U.S. Army Reserve. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, August 25th, 2022. If you're looking for a reason to uh, celebrate today, it is Kiss and Makeup Day. So if you are in the doghouse, uh, today is the day to kiss and make up. Also, it is Secondhand Wardrobe Day, National Whiskey Sour Day, National Banana Split Day. I'm not too sure if those things go together or not, but you can try. And it is National Park Service Founders Day, the National Park Service created as part of the Department of the Interior on this day in 1916. So, National Park Service Founders Day today. Reasons to celebrate observances through the day today. So, my hot take on the president's uh, announcement yesterday, and it was expected, it was not a surprise, uh, the president uh, went ahead and canceled up to $10,000 in student loan debt uh, for many borrowers, not everyone, but for many borrowers, and then extended the payment pause until the end of the year for everyone else. And my hot take on this is I wondered, what is the upside politically? What did he gain politically out of this? Because for those on the left, uh, the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, AOC wing of the Democratic Party, $10,000 is not nearly enough. They want a minimum of $50,000 of student loan forgiveness, if not all student loan debt to be canceled. So this is, uh, for, for that side, considered a pittance. And they're not satisfied. And then, of course, on the right, uh, they're framing this as unnecessary spending, sending the wrong message that you don't have to pay back your loans. Uh, it's going to add to the debt, add to inflation, um, and, you know, it's going to make average taxpayers, carpenters and plumbers and single mothers foot the bill for the college degrees of doctors and lawyers and CEOs. And uh, so I what is it? So they're against it. So you've wedged yourself into the middle where nobody you haven't made anybody happy. And I'm just 
I don't know what the political upside the for this plan is. Uh, if he was thinking it was a compromise, doesn't seem to have worked. But anyway, at least in the initial reaction. So anyway, and I could go on and on and on about this uh, issue. And I have online and discussions with uh, friends and so on. But uh, I'll leave that there. I just don't I just don't know what the upside is politically. Uh, on this but that is cer- certainly uh, one of the stories going to be in the news today uh this was uh, i thought the much more interesting story of the week politically you hear about this earlier this week uh they had uh, the uh, florida primary and one of the races didn't get a whole lot of attention but i thought it was very interesting maxwell frost uh won the democratic nomination for an open seat in a heavily Democratic district uh, in Orlando, in the Orlando area. What is interesting about Mr. Frost, he is a 25-year-old community organizer. And um, if he wins in November, which he is likely to do because this is a heavily blue district, if he wins in November, he will be the first Gen Z member of Congress. First Gen Z member of Congress, He's 25 years old, and the minimum age for House members is 25. Uh, there is another Gen Z candidate uh, on the Republican side. Caroline Levitt was running for a New Hampshire House seat, and she tells CNN, we have people in Washington, D.C. that have been clinging to power twice as long as I've been alive. My youth is a strength, and that is showing on the campaign trail already. So I just thought it was uh, rather interesting. You've got two Gen Zers running, one on the Democratic side, one on the Republican side, uh, who could end up in Congress. And we could see the first of the ultimate changing of the guard in American government. I thought that was kind of interesting. So a couple of races worth following, I think. So this was kind of interesting, a a story uh, published in the Journal of American Medical Association, a small study uh, written about in uh, the uh, JAMA Psychiatry Journal demonstrates that the compound in psychedelic mushrooms can help people drink less. Um, It's psilocybin. Is that how you pronounce it? Um. After an eighth-month study, those who took psilocybin drank less than those who were in the control group on a placebo. About half of those who uh, took this psychedelic mushroom compound stopped drinking entirely. Which, one could argue, are they trading one vice for another in a certain sense? I don't know. But uh, in the same vein of using marijuana for medicinal purposes. Uh, It is currently believed that the compound changes how the brain organizes itself. And in theory, this could help people break old habits uh, that are uh, bad for them, like uh, alcoholism. And so, you know, something uh, I I saw something about that several months ago and kind of dismissed it out of hand. But uh, apparently this gaining a lot of legitimacy uh, with this uh, study the results of the study published in the uh, JAMA Journal of uh, Psychiatry. So uh, kind of interesting there. Um, Speaking of addictions, a recent study published in 
The journal Health Communication suggests that news addiction can be bad for both your mental and your physical health. I don't know. Should I report on this? Because (laughs) it seems maybe a little self-defeating. Maybe this is something that we shouldn't be talking about on a (laughs) news program. But uh, as I said, a news addiction can be bad for both your mental and physical health. Uh, This team surveyed 1,100 Americans and examined if there were any correlations between news watching and negative emotions. Well, I would think that would be kind of a no-brainer. I mean, the news is certainly filmed a lot, filled with a lot of doom and gloom, so you would think that that would be uh, connected to negative emotions on some level. And indeed, the results revealed that those who engaged in problematic news consumption were more likely to experience negative mental sy- uh, symptoms and feel physically ill. Now, the devil's in the detail here. It says those who engaged in problematic news consumption. And I don't know how they defined that, at least for the purposes of this study. The story doesn't say, but I think that would be interesting if you want to learn more. I guess I'd have to read up on this a little bit more broadly. But the researchers say, and I'm quoting here, if someone notices they are feel- feeling more depressed and anxious, having trouble pulling themselves away from the news for long periods, or if it is causing them to be less engaged in other areas of their lives, they may want to examine how much news they are consuming, unquote. Uh, the uh, research, by the way, from uh, NYU Langone Health, Dr. Amanda Spray. So... And I'm thinking that would be an addiction that probably some psychedelic drugs would probably help with, too, if you really (laughs) really think about it. Not that I'm advocating that, but if you're going to use it for one addiction, I guess why not others? Just saying. And uh, let's see what else is uh, going on. Oh, here is something interesting, something to think about as you're getting your day started. If you... Uh, have one of those mornings where you just didn't get a really good night's sleep the night before. Have you ever had one of those days or just have a bad night's sleep? We all have it from time to time. And it may actually affect how nice of a person you are the next day. Uh, A new study... From UC Berkeley, researchers have discovered that even an hour of sleep deprivation causes people to withdraw from helping others. Uh, So a bad night of sleep can actually affect how supportive and how charitable you are toward other human beings, toward your fellow man. The team even found that, uh, that people are less likely to donate to charity after losing sleep during the time change. You know, when we spring forward, you lose an hour of sleep. And that is not the time to go on a charity drive <laughs> right after right after the time change, apparently. So I wonder, conversely, does that mean that here we're coming up on the fall back period where you get an extra hour of sleep? Would that be a good time to launch a GoFundMe? <laughs> Maybe so. Uh, The study also shows, moreover, that uh, the non-charitable antisocial behavior is the result of disruptions in the 
pro-social cognitive network of the brain after someone loses sleep. So they're looking at the uh, at the uh, big picture here in terms of neurology, what's going on in the brain. But basically, um, they are saying that if you are sleep deprived, you are not a nice person. You're su- not as supportive, not as charitable uh, toward other people. Which is a really fancy medical mumbo-jumbo way of saying when you lose sleep, you're grumpy the next day. Which, again, from the file of, duh. (laughs) I mean, that's ultimately what they found, that when you lose sleep, uh, you don't get enough sleep. You're grumpy the next day. Yeah. (laughs) I think we all inherently knew that. But now we scientifically know that. There you go. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Thursday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather, partly to mostly sunny skies, expected again today with a high of 85. It'll be partly cloudy tonight, a low of 66. A bicyclist was taken to a hospital after getting hit by a vehicle in downtown Finley. Police say the bicyclist was crossing South Main Street on their bike within a mid-block crosswalk when they were struck by a northbound SUV. Police say the bicyclist was taken to Blanchard Valley Hospital for treatment of minor injuries and that the driver was issued a citation for failing to yield to a pedestrian. Local educators expanded their manufacturing knowledge and experience thanks to Raise the Bar Hancock County's Summer Educator Experience. Raise the Bar Executive Director Tricia Valesque says the new program is designed to bolster the local workforce by changing perceptions and attitudes of manufacturing. Seeing firsthand that there are great entry-level jobs and opportunities for individuals to grow within a company. Learn more about Raise the Bar Hancock County's programs, including their new summer educator experience, on the website. The Ohio Lottery says a $1 million Mega Millions lottery ticket was sold in Finley. The ticket matched five numbers, only missing the jackpot by not having the correct Mega Ball. The Ohio Lottery posted to its social media asking, is it yours? The Buckeye State is making it easier for families to get access to affordable drug addiction treatments. State finance experts estimate that opioid misuse by a single family member can cost up to an additional $35,000 a year. And it's why state leaders say they're launching the Recovery Within Reach program. You can find resources at recoverywithinreach.ohio.gov. Onan's Tracy Townsend reporting. Cincinnati Bengals stars Jamar Chase and Joe Burrow both have quite the following on social media. In fact, Chase ranks first and Burrow second on the list of the top 50 NFL social media influences. The list was composed by the NFL's Players Association and Zoomf, a digital measurement platform. The Bengals host the Steelers to open the regular season on September 11th. Remember, you can always get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. You might have seen this about a month ago. It made big headlines in the news when some 4,000 beagles were released from a research breeding facility in Virginia on orders from a federal judge. This came after a years-long effort from federal investigators and people for the ethical treatment of animals. And joining us this morning is Vice President Daniel Payden, who oversaw that effort for PETA. 
Daniel, this was a story that shocked a lot of people, both in terms of the sheer number of animals involved and what we learned about how they had been treated. How common is the practice of breeding dogs for laboratory experiments? It's exceedingly common. You know, most individuals think of uh, laboratories and they think of uh, rats and mice and perhaps other primates in labs. And they often know about the fact that dogs are bred as pests on puppy mills, but uh, most people don't realize that beagles, to the tune of around 65,000 every single year, are used in experiments. They're kept in laboratories and that tens of thousands of other uh, beagles are being bred at any given moment in facilities like Invigo, like the one that's shutting down in Virginia, uh, solely for uh, being sold to laboratories around the globe. And as you alluded to, this is not the only company doing this. It's not. There are others. Invigo accounted for about 25% of the U.S. market in uh, in these animals. And so shutting this facility down will put a huge dent in that industry. Uh, but there are other facilities, including in New York State, Wisconsin, for instance, uh, that keep thousands of animals, as many as 21,000 beagles, on a single property. And again, it's not for sale to pet shops or for to people who want them as companions, but it's solely to put them uh, onto trucks and into planes and to take them off to lock them back up in the laboratory for several years for a variety of experiments and ultimately... Uh, where they're put down. What what types of experiments are we talking about? What types of experiments are these uh, dogs used uh, for? They are mutilated in unnecessary uh, surgeries. Uh, some of them are forced to run on treadmills to study the impact of the exercise on their heart. But, you know, some of them suffer cardiac arrest and, and pass away there. Uh, others are bred to suffer and die from uh, painful conditions like uh, essentially the canine equivalent of muscular dystrophy. Uh, beagles in particular are often force-fed pharmaceutical compounds and industrial chemicals. Uh, and all these experiments are, are frequently quite painful and almost always they are deadly. Now, again, we've had this conversation in the past. Some say that animal research is necessary to ensure things like safe products, safe medical treatments, and so on for humans. It's unfortunate, but it is necessary. You argue that that may have been the case at one time, but is no longer the case today. Exactly right. So this facility that, that we investigated was, was built in 1961. And, you know, 61 years ago and, and, and even 30 and 20 years ago, um, most Americans and, and most in the government probably felt that, yeah, that the answer to advancing human health uh, was with using animals, was with using dogs and other animals in experiments. And, and today that, that's just not the case anymore. The National Institutes of Health or the NIH, which funds most animal experiments in this country itself says that about 95% of drugs that are tested on animals and are found there to be safe and effective don't translate to human medicine. When they're tested on us as, as humans, they're either not effective or in some cases they're actually dangerous and harmful for us. So the alternative in 2022 is to use non-animal experimental methods like 
computer modeling or human organs that are built essentially on computer chips as more reliable, uh, effective ways to test drugs and to advance human health. Now, when did, as we mentioned, this was uh, the result, the shutting down uh, of this facility was the result of a years-long effort by your organization. When did federal investigators and the Department of Justice get involved, and how precedent-setting is this moving forward again for these other facilities that still exist? Yeah, the, the feds got involved in earnest really in October 2021. We, we took our evidence that our investigator had gathered at the facility. She had worked there for six months to that point. Uh, we took it to the USDA. They went and started inspecting. They ultimately found a total of 48 violations of the Federal Animal Welfare Act, which is a very bare minimum law that establishes basic requirements for how to care for and handle animals in facilities like Indigo. Uh, the USDA seemed to just drag their heels. They didn't really appear to be doing anything until May, uh, this past May, when the U.S. Department of Justice took the initiative, stepped in, filed the lawsuit, and went before a federal judge and really hashed it out with Indigo that led, led to the point where this facility is going to be closing down and all 4,000 dogs who had survived their time there are being freed and, and, and finding homes uh, forever now. It sets a precedent in, in huge ways. It's the largest rescue of dogs in U.S. history. But more importantly, like you said, I think it sends a message to those in this industry that you are you know, not outside the reach of law, that if you continue to violate the law, if you continue to neglect animals and abuse animals, um, that the DOJ will come for you and that they will take you before a federal judge. And you may have to shudder and, and give up your livelihood, in essence, if you don't meet these bare minimums of law. Now, as you mentioned, all of this started with an investigation by PETA uh, of this particular facility. Then you took it to the feds. Are, do you have similar investigations going on on these other facilities uh, that are doing similar work? We do not right now, but it, it, it is worth looking at again, and we're certainly paying very close attention to, to all of them. And Vigo itself, actually, despite shutting down this facility, operates about 10 other ones in the U.S. that breed other types of animals for experiments. And given their track record with these beagles, we're certainly very interested in what they're doing to other animals. But because we always have our eyes and ears open. Yeah, because I would assume that your ultimate goal would be to shut down this industry entirely. It is. You know, PETA opposes the use of any animal in any experiment, even if it were to uh, miraculously or rarely bring about uh, a benefit for humanity. We are an animal rights organization, and our perspective is that animals uh, are simply just not ours to use for our own purposes, and that includes uh, for experimentation. But in the interim, we're also very practical, and we're trying to work with government agencies to move them away from archaic uses of animals towards more progressive cutting edge ways of doing research that that will help humans without harming any animals. And as for these specific animals, as you were alluding to earlier, they were taken in by shelters all over the country, right? Indeed, yeah. So 4,000 beagles, it's a massive undertaking. I think uh, dozens and dozens of 
humane societies and SPCAs and various private agencies are taking in these dogs in groups of 10, 20, 50. Uh, and thankfully, Americans are, are really excited to take them in as companions and to give them the life uh, that they've always deserved. I, again, an amazing story and uh, one that shocked the sensibilities for a number of reasons. Daniel Payden, again, uh, Vice President of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, oversaw this effort uh, to uh, shut down this uh, research breeding facility in Virginia. Daniel, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. Happening around town, the Flag City Morning Rotary is seeking grant applications from nonprofits in Hancock County. And joining us with uh, more details, one of the uh, committee members, Lori Poland, who we've uh, spoken with a number of times on the uh, program, various capacities. Yes, so, good morning. Uh, Lori, good to see you again. And uh, the uh, grant coordinator, uh, Laura Iyer, with us uh, this morning. Thank you very much for coming. Good morning. As well, uh, so first of all, talk a little bit about the uh, grant uh, program here. So uh, Rotary offers grants to um, local businesses or lo local nonprofit organizations. We, this is something new for our club. We've really never offered uh, grants before, so we are trying it um, to see how um, well it goes and how, you know, kind of tweaking the system and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So we know that we have a short grant cycle right now, but uh, reaching out to the community because, you know, one of the mottos of Rotary is service above self and right. part of that service is giving back to our community so we as a club felt that because we have some funds uh, built up through various um, events that we've hosted we wanted to give back to our community so uh so this is uh, something new a new program and as you mentioned the uh application window is uh, rather narrow you've got what a couple three weeks uh right the application is out there on flagcitymorningrotary.org mm -hmm. and it is up till september 15th okay and we are um, going to award all or some of ten thousand dollars to local nonprofits. And they do have, um, we do give priority to applications that follow our seven core causes of Rotary. That's, they are listed there. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. What is it exactly that you are looking for? And I'll kind of throw this out to both of you. What are you looking for in terms of the, uh, the grants? Well, we're looking at things that can promote peace, fighting disease, providing clean water, sanitation, hygiene, saving mothers and children, supporting education, growing local economies, and protecting the environment. Okay, so those are kind of the key aspects. But then, uh, of course, you can, um, I don't want to say interpret that or apply that in, in various ways. Right. So we're looking more for projects or um, programs over, like, administrative costs, things like that. Um, so, you know, not a capital campaign um, or something like that. More of those specific programs or products or programs or um, projects that – would hit one of these specific areas of interest. Now, how many grants are you hoping to hand out? I mean, because $10,000, you can split that up any number of ways. So are, is, have you put a cap on that? Or do you have a goal for the number of grants, anything like that? No, we don't. Um, we're just going to see what comes in. And, you know, as Lori has said, it's our first time around. Yeah. We don't know what kind of response we get. We hope we get many, yeah. many uh, grant applications. But we're just going to see and see what we get and go from there. And so the uh, restrictions, uh, you're looking for nonprofits in Hancock County, correct? correct? Mm -hmm. And right. aside from that, that's, that's pretty much the only... Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Right. You do have to be a, a 501c3 mm-hmm. uh, because just the Obviously. way that our grants are right. um, structured. Mm-hmm. We do have to live by the rotary rules of grant making as well. So we mm-hmm. want to make sure we're in line with what they've asked us to do. So yes, it is for nonprofits only. But because uh, our rotary really serves Hancock County and the most of the folks in our rotary are from Hancock County, we decided that as our first go round, we're going to limit this to Hancock County. So uh, as you mentioned, uh, the information, the applications can be found on the uh, website. Correct. FlagCityMorningRotary.org. And uh, as we mentioned, the uh, deadline is September the 15th uh, for those. And then when do you hope to have those kind of doled out and put to use? Um, we are hoping that we will have those out within uh, 60 days. Uh, we'll review the grants. as a com- We'll have a committee that will review those grants, and then we're looking to make that award rather quickly, so 30 to 60 days. And again, part of that depends on how many we get and how right. uh, far we have to delve into, um, you know, if we would get grants uh, request over $10,000, we're going to have to figure out how are we going to split that up? Mm-hmm. You know, are we going to have to say no to someone or can we say yes to everyone? So that will also determine how, how long the turnaround is. But we're uh, hoping to turn it around rather quickly. Uh, ideally, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, you'd like to say yes to everyone uh, as well. But that mm-hmm. remains to be seen, uh, you know, uh, obviously limited by the amount of funds that you have. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, as you mentioned, this is something uh, something new. So pretty exciting uh, to mm-hmm. actually get to this point, I would imagine. It really is. You know, the club was started. It's about a 15-year-old club. Um, you know, there is the other rotary uh, that was, is over uh, 100 years old. I was going to so, say, for um, a lot of folks, they, they, they uh, think of Flag City Morning Rotary as the other uh, right, rotary Right, we are club. kind of the, we are the, <laughs> new um, kids on the block. little new kids on the block. Yeah. We were an offshoot of that noon rotary. Mm-hmm. Um, and who, have, again, does many, many good things for our community and is well established as a grant uh, funder. We are about 15 years old, so this is something new for us. But as the years have gone by, we have built up uh, our funds to allow us to be able to go back out into the community and um, really live that uh, motto of rotary of, of impacting our community so we are really really excited about that and we as a club kind of had a conversation we finally have some money to give so let's let's do it let's yeah. let's go ahead we're going to throw our hat out into the ring and we're going to see what uh, what we can come up with to um, impact our community i was actually going to ask it was one of the things i was going to talk about the the history and uh, of the flag city morning rotary mm-hmm. and and kind of where you are now with uh, with the club so we again we have we do have a couple of members who were right there at the very beginning mm-hmm. um it was an offshoot of that noon rotary uh, our membership right now is uh, we're just over 30 members but we're always looking for new members uh, we meet at seven 30 a.m., which I know makes some people, not you, Chris, because you're up way before the crack of dawn, but some people <laughs> makes them go, oh my gosh, that's well, so early. I'm marginally awake <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. uh, before the crack of dawn. By 7 30, you got both eyes open. <laughs> uh, but we meet at 7 30 a.m. at 50 North, which is a wonderful host for us. So we are always looking for new members. If you have any interest in joining or even coming as a visitor, um, you know, we would love to have you and show you what we're all about. We always say we're the fun club. Uh, we um, do have a good time. Now, do we, you say that as, we do that, as implying do, that the other one is No, they're, is they're not also fun. It's the just that they're a lot bigger than we are. And so um, they are a little bit more of the rule followers as far as the, uh, we are a little bit looser with our uh, interpretation not, of sure what the morning you, looks like. So. I'm sure you're going to need anything there. <laughs> just keep digging. I know, it's digging. awful, isn't it? But, <laughs> They're much more, uh, they they are a wonderful club as well, but again, much more well-established in the fact that they're over 100 years old and much larger than we are. So again, you know, we can be a little more... well, what does it say about the uh, community that we support multiple mm-hmm. Rotary clubs? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, really. Right. And some sometimes the morning fits, p- 
people's schedules better than the noon. Yeah. So, and if there is a different vibe mm-hmm. to the extent that there is, that's also not necessarily mm-hmm. a bad thing. Uh, you know, depending on what someone is looking for, right? You know, or yeah, what we are resonates just, with someone. Yeah, we are. We are really excited. You know, they are very well established as far as um, giving back to the community with the grants. They're right. they're very good and very um, uh, very charitable in that giving. I I would not want to. Uh, try to compete with the number of dollars they put into our community but we so we are on a much smaller scale but we are just excited that we can um we can delve into that yeah as and, well and i would imagine it would be fun uh to find out just how far ten thousand dollars can go mm-hmm. and, and right. how much of an impact that mm-hmm. you can have definitely and you know we're hoping that each year in midsummer we do the same structure and do it again every year and perhaps have even more money to put into it next year or the year after. Mm-hmm. Um, as Lori had said, we're building up our funds. We're hoping to make an impact. And, you know, it may be a little smaller, but it's still to the people yeah. that are asking for exactly. it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. A couple thousand dollars can yeah. make a big Absolutely. shift. Absolutely. It's amazing what the uh, nonprofits in our area can do mm-hmm. with uh, e- even just a small amount of funding. So, uh, again, the grant application deadline is coming up September 15th, so a fairly uh, narrow window. But we have a link up on our webpage for more information at goodmornings.net. And, again, uh, Lori Poland, Laura Iyer with the uh, Flank City Morning Rotary. Thanks very much for dropping by. We appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Now, the Good Mornings Community and Business Spotlight. Coming up at the end of the week on Friday, Hancock Public Health will be hosting an overdose awareness educational event at the Marathon Center for the Performing Arts. And joining us this morning with details on that, Cheryl Miller and Jamie Decker. Tell us a little bit about this. Well, it's an overdose uh, awareness day event. It's from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m., of course, at Marathon Petroleum Center for the Arts. Uh, mm-hmm. It is to bring awareness to overdoses and people that have died of overdose. Mm-hmm. So we will have a panel of speakers, uh, somebody who has survived an overdose, a family member who has had a, fa- uh, a, a family member die of an overdose, mm-hmm. and then also a panel of a couple experts that are going to give some some statistics and things like that. What is the most... Uh I guess, misunderstood or underestimated fact uh, about overdose, especially within our community, would you say? Um, I think there's a negative stigma with overdose, Mm -hmm. specifically in Hancock County. And and what we're trying to accomplish is um, that we are asking the community to consider uh, those who die of overdose as people and not... um, look at them as they are bad because they do something that society thinks is not good mm-hmm. um, you know we're uh, committed to saving lives and so the purpose of this event is to bring awareness to um, harm reduction methods that are scientifically proven to help stop overdose overdose deaths there are an awful lot of people who are touched directly uh, by this issue. And it's interesting, Jamie, you mentioned uh, there are going to be personal stories. Uh, it, it does seem like there are a lot of people who are more than happy to go out there and, and tell their story to hopefully uh, make sure that the same thing doesn't happen to others. Yeah, I think that's important that we get uh, uh, the human aspect of it as I know numbers are people need to see numbers and this and that, but but a, someone personally 
telling the story and we need more people that are willing to do that because then it does humanize and it gets rid of the stigma um you know our community sometimes looks upon people with substance use disorder and and i don't think that they're they're they realize that it is a disease and that um and that it can affect everybody it It can and does impact yes there's no across the board there is no segment of society that cannot be cannot be affected by this yeah i mean the richest to the poorest to it doesn't matter and they all have uh they all have different stories, but uh, a lot of the same type of stories. Yes. Yes. Um, I We were talking the other day about the uh, latest uh, data from the National Institutes of Health finds that opioid uh, addiction and opioid use is actually falling or has fallen in the past year, which is good. We're also seeing other drug use uh, climb, uh, not just marijuana, but hallucinogens and, and so on. I'm, I'm guessing we were focusing on on opioids because that's you know what grabs the headlines. But this isn't just opioids, right? Correct. Uh, we are seeing a, a spectrum of drug use and abuse across Ohio and across the nation. Um, you know, there is a, a very concentrated effort to um, eliminate opioid uh, distribution um, into our country, into our communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, there is a, a wonderful organization called the SOAR Initiative, and they put out um, a lot of data, real-time data, about what substances um, are being found in um, persons that come into emergency departments who are suffering from an overdose. And, and we're starting to see other like veterinary substances that wow. you would find mainly in a veterinary clinic that people hmm. are using. Is it just a matter of access? It's a matter of access. It's a matter of um, economics. Um, mm. If you don't have the money for a specific item, then you're going to um, find something that will still, uh, you know, cure, cure that craving. Uh, remember, it's an addiction, mm-hmm. and the body, the brain, has told that person that they cannot survive without this mm. substance or this, you know, this chemical reaction. Yeah. We talk about the fact that uh, there is uh, that stigma and that uh, lack of understanding, full understanding about what this is all about and what we can do to help those who uh, have uh, issues with substance abuse. And to be fair, it's not just within this community. I think it's every community uh, has, to a certain extent, that head in the sand sort of thing. Um, What do you hope uh, people will take away from this event on Friday? I'm hoping that they'll get a better understanding of of, uh, of of how many overdoses are happening, I'm hoping that they'll get a better understanding on how to prevent a death from an overdose because we'll have you know plenty of Narcan there. Uh, just some education because I think I believe that stigma comes from ignorance and and if people are educated about something, then that stigma can can soften. And, and possibly, I don't think it's ever going to go away, but it can. Yeah. Again, this event is happening on Friday. The Marathon Center for the Performing Arts free event. Encourage everyone to come by. Learn what you don't know uh, about addiction in general and within this community specifically. What are the What's the time uh, on this? 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. Okay. Uh, certainly encourage folks to uh, stop by and educate yourselves. Again, uh, Cheryl Miller, Jamie Decker, thanks very much for dropping by. We appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Thank you.
The Community and Business Spotlight is a promotional advertisement paid for by the featured sponsor. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veteran Services. City officials in Monterey, California are asking citizens to be on the lookout for a missing statue. Uh, apparently, someone... <laughs> so They say a bronze statue of Dennis the Menace was sawed, sawed off at the base and stolen from a city park early Sunday morning. <laughs> a bronze statue of Dennis the Menace. Yes, Dennis the Menace, the cartoon character. Uh, apparently, this is the second time a statue at the park was stolen as thieves took one back in 2006. The town replaced it the following year. And now, another statue has come up missing, this time in bronze likeness of Dennis the Menace. <laughs> what do you do? What, what would you do with a bronze statue of Dennis the Menace? <laughs> if somebody in the Monterey area comes up with an unusual lawn ornament out of the blue, <laughs> sometimes you might be suspicious but I mean, is that is there a market for this? Is you sell this uh, the black market or something? I I don't know that there's a huge <laughs> illicit art demand for a bronze Dennis the Menace. But uh, in any event, law enfor- law enforcement officials are asking anyone with information to call the Monterey Police Department. <laughs> Somebody's trying to, and what what would how would you hide it? I mean, you know what would. It seems to be something that uh, would be tough to keep under wraps. I, it's a lot of trouble to go through to steal a bronze Dennis the Menace. Uh, let's see here. Not Mother of the Year uh, in uh, Clovis. Um, Clovis, California? Clovis. I know there are uh, Clovises in city. There are a lot of uh, Clovises. So I'm not sure. I should have uh, looked a little closer at this. Uh, Police officials uh, said officers were called uh, to a uh, to the scene of an accident. Uh, Authorities say a woman sideswiped another vehicle and uh, did not stop. She was pulled over and arrested for DUI. She was coming from picking up her child from school. Picking up her child from school. While she was inebriated, and officials say the uh, child was unhurt and taken to a relative's home. Mom faces not only DUI charges, but child endangerment as well. Not mother of the year. Not mother of the year. Man. Speaking of uh, people with bad uh, driving habits, this from uh, Ottawa, Ontario, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police uh, tweeted about a uh, an incident in which a pizza delivery driver uh, <laughs> was uh, clocked doing 119 kilometers per hour or 73 miles per hour in a residential neighborhood. Got to get that pizza there hot and fresh. 73 miles an hour through a residential neighborhood. Uh, oh, and he was on his cell phone at the time. Oh, and he was driving without insurance at the time. <laughs> the uh, post from the RCMP pointed out that this t- 
type of driving is dangerous. And your pizza will probably never make it. <laughs> Case in point, this order ended up not being delivered. Wow. Um, by the way, the uh, driver is facing charges including an automatic 14-day impound on their car, 30-day suspension of driver's license, a fine between $2,000 and $10,000. Uh, this is all for the reckless driving uh, charge, the speeding charge. And then a distracted driving charge that automatically puts them in for a fine uh, of up to $3,000. And uh, also then additional fines for driving without insurance. So, <laughs> uh, And, and a, a bigger tip for getting the pizza there on time. Not going to cover all of that. So, Man, 73 miles an hour for a residential neighborhood. My goodness. Um... This out of uh, Detroit, uh, three individuals have been arrested for trying to carjack uh, a number of Dodge Hellcat Chargers and Challengers from a local storage lot. Officers, uh, let's see here, uh, Detroit Police Lieutenant Clive Stewart uh, said uh, this was a very unique crime in that the three individuals who were placed under arrest, now mind you, they're carjacking, stealing cars, Grand Theft Auto from a local storage lot, Dodge Hellcat Chargers and Challengers. These are pretty uh, beefy sports cars. The three individuals are ages 11, 12, and 14. You believe that? 11, 12, and 14. The uh, belief is that uh, this is part of a larger criminal ring and uh, the actual thieves are employing younger kids to do their dirty work because uh, they won't face as harsh of a sentence if and when they are caught. Um, the uh, kids, for their part, think it's fun and think there's no penalty to it. Uh, the uh, police lieutenant, Clive Stewart, says, doing this as long as I've been doing this, 11, uh, 11 years old is the youngest car thief he's ever had. Uh, the car's... Individually valued between eighty and ninety thousand dollars. Man, that is crazy. Eleven, twelve, and fourteen years old. What is this world coming to? And finally, in the broken news this morning, <laughs> here is another story of uh, somebody trying to smuggle contraband into the country. A California man was caught at the southern border with dozens of reptiles in his pants. <laughs> dozens of reptiles in his pants. Federal prosecutors in L.A. announced uh, Wednesday that 30-year-old Jose Manuel Perez pleaded guilty to importing wild animals into the country. He's accused of smuggling over 1,700 wild animals in total, worth over, not all at the same time, he didn't have 1,700 reptiles in his pants all at once. But over a course of uh, many months, if not years, he smuggled over $700,000 worth of uh, wild animals into the U.S. He was arrested back in February at the San Diego border crossing with about 60 snakes and lizards concealed in his pants and in his jacket. He faces... Over 20 years in federal prison. 20 years if convicted. 
60 snakes and lizards concealed in his pants. <clears throat> I, I wonder how much he was supposed to be paid for being a mule to smuggle all of these things uh, into the country, whether he was reselling them himself. But that would be something that I just would not. No, thank you. Snakes and lizards in my pants. I think I'll pass. But some people do anything for money. There you go. Uh, That is today's broken news report. (laughs) This update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. And yet another major brand just announced it's halting all social media advertising. The two most overused and abused words in advertising are truth and trust. They are the two most precious commodities for all brands, big and small. As an advertiser, you have to trust your partners to protect your brand's truth using the media consumer's trust. Radio, it's on. This message provided by WFIN. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news, the statistics that shape our lives. Where are America's best tippers? Well, it uh, it seems that Indiana diners are the most generous in the nation, adding an average 21% to the check at restaurants. According to a new report, uh, Indiana, number one, but Ohio, not far behind. Uh, After Indiana, it comes West Virginia, Ohio, Delaware, Kentucky, Wyoming, New Hampshire, Wisconsin, South Carolina, and Pennsylvania. Uh, All tip more than the nationwide average of 19.7%. So, folks in Ohio, diners in Ohio, pat yourself on the back. You're doing good. California diners are the cheapest at 17.5%. But the report notes that the state has a higher minimum wage for waitstaff. Washington State, Florida, and New York tippers are below average as well. The Restaurant Trends report from Toast, a point-of-service software company, notes that tips nationwide are up nearly 10% compared to last year. And one of the things that we saw from the pandemic is that it kind of changed the tipping paradigm as more people realized just how important these people are and the fact that they work for a relatively low amount of money. The standard now for tipping uh, at a at a dine-in, at a, at a restaurant when you're dining in, is 15 to 20% of the total check. Takeout tipping, the standard is 10 to 15% for takeout. For food delivery, it's 10 to 15%. For personal grocery shoppers, uh, it is 10 to 15% of the bill. And for other non-food delivery drivers, it's uh, between 5 and $20, depending on the size and the weight of the package. If it's really big or really heavy, it's on the higher end of that scale. So if you're wondering how much to tip in certain situations, that's kind of where the standard is. And Ohioans, among the most generous generous tippers in the nation, not quite as generous as Hoosiers, but uh, we're right up there.
Well, as we all know, Ohio is the birthplace of aviation as the native state of the Wright brothers. And since this is National Aviation Week, we didn't want the occasion to pass without the appropriate recognition. Now, there are all kinds of aviation, from private pilots who fly as a hobby, commercial airlines that take us on vacations, of course. And then there is military aviation that keeps us safe. And we are joined this morning by Fixed Wing Division Chief with the U.S. Army Reserve Command Aviation uh, Directorate, Lieutenant Colonel Amy Buck, with more on the unique opportunities the Army Reserve offers soldiers in serving in the aviation community. And Lieutenant Colonel, tell us about the significance of National Aviation Week and the U.S. Army Reserve, especially in your position. It is very significant to you, both personally and professionally. Absolutely, Chris. So Aviation Week gives us the opportunity to celebrate the accomplishments and contributions of soldiers like serving within our aviation community. Uh, in the Army Reserves, we celebrate our crew members from a multitude of missions. And I'd like to highlight a specific search and rescue mission out there in Joint Base Lewis-McCord, Washington. Uh, we have a Chinook company out there who supports National Park Service Rangers with high-altitude rescue missions on Mount Rainier. This is just awesome. All kinds of different ways that uh, you know there are aviation opportunities uh, within the U.S. Army Reserve specifically and the military generally. What led you to join the Army Reserve and how did you become a pilot? Well, my father and both of my grandfathers served in the Army, mm-hmm. and so their service kind of sparked my interest in service to our nation. Um, the aviation aspect was solidified when I was 13 years old and lived in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and I uh, was out on the back 40 out there, probably in a place I shouldn't have been, but uh, <laughs> I was in a place called Trout Stream, and it's a little stream, and it had a, had a bridge over it. And um, I heard a helicopter kind of getting closer and closer. I couldn't see it. I could hear it. And then once I got really close, I could feel the wind. And I saw the water below me kind of starting to swirl. And when I looked up, the helicopter had landed on that small bridge. And uh, the pilot in the, in the helicopter, he raised his visor, and then he saluted me. Hmm. And that moment is when I knew that I wanted to be uh, an army aviator. Yeah, that's a pretty so, that's a pretty cool after, moment. Yeah, it was it was unique, um, and I'm I'm not sure what made him salute me, but but I appreciated it, and it really struck a chord with me. You have parlayed that into quite a distinguished career, so obviously, congratulations on that, and thank you for your service. Tell us about some of the unique opportunities that the Army Reserve has for pilots and those who aspire to be pilots. I'd be glad to. Yeah, just this past July, the Army Reserves reinstated our street to seat program. And this program is unique because you can become an Army aviator with a high school degree or equivalent. In exchange for your aviation training, you commit to 10 years of service to graduate flight school. Uh, another opportunity for our pilots is airplanes. Most people associate fixed wing aviation with the Air Force, but we have them too here in the Army. Uh, we actually have jets. And the Army Reserve trains all of the jet pilots um, at the jet training detachment down in Clearwater, Florida. Now, it's not just pilots either. There are many other opportunities uh, that are aviation-related in the U.S. Army Reserve. Yeah, Chris, it definitely takes a team. Uh, It takes highly specialized professionals to make aviation missions successful. Um, Other careers in Army aviation include aviation operational 
air traffic controllers, aircraft component repair, paramedics, and helicopter mechanics. Um, our Blackhawk mechanics are also crew members. So they're responsible for maintaining the aircraft, but they're also responsible for uh, airspace surveillance or in the air and for everything behind the pilot seats to include the passengers and the cargo. They are crucial to the crew and to our aviation. And I, I have to interject. I have uh, something of a, a personal uh, connection to this. My uh, youngest son in the military uh, got into avionics and parlayed that into uh, now a very successful civilian career. So obviously those opportunities are there as well. Yes, especially we see that a lot in our flight paramedic community. So we mm. can recruit paramedics in the civilian careers and they can do the same thing um, in the military. So where do folks learn about uh, these uh, aviation career opportunities uh, within the Army Reserve? To learn more about the Army Reserve and aviation careers, you can visit sar.army.mil. And Chris, I'd like to give a shout out to the soldiers assigned to the 11th Aviation Brigade who are returning home from a successful deployment. Welcome back and job well done. And to the families who supported them, thank you for your unwavering support. We thank all of those involved in aviation, particularly within the military generally, the U.S. Army Reserve specifically. Again, Fixed Wing Division Chief of the U.S. Army Reserve Command Aviation Directorate, Lieutenant Colonel Amy Buck. Lieutenant Colonel, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Chris. Have a wonderful week. And that will finish up our podcast for today. Thanks to all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. And remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage. That, of course, is goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow on the program to finish up the week, not many people can say their career has placed them center stage at as many historical happenings as Christy Bowe. The award-winning White House photojournalist reflects on her career and how the business has changed over the years from her fascinating new memoir, Eyes That Speak. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. Catch you back here tomorrow.